Good morning, church. I'm glad you guys are here. Um, if this is your first time, as Blake said, we want to wish you a special welcome here. And uh, it's good to see all of our K through fifth students in here. It's kind of cool. Uh, my children are in here. Uh, so that's exciting. But we're going to be continuing in our series, Knowing God, today. This is week five. Uh, so far, we've seen uh, the creation account. Um, then we've seen the fall of mankind in the garden. And then we talked about Noah um, and God's judgment when he flooded the earth. Uh, and today we're gonna be in the Tower of Babel, which is Genesis chapter 11. Now, one of our biggest hopes with this series is that you guys would come to know God on a deeper and, and more intimate level uh, through a study of his word, which is why we're going from Genesis to Revelation uh, and the redemptive narrative. So with that said, I wanna do something a little different with my sermon today. Um, I wanna bring you guys into my personal Bible study. Um, I wanna kind of model for you uh, you, you may already have your own thing, that's fine, but I wanna make sure that you're equipped to study the Word of God. So I'm gonna model for you kind of how I do that uh, with my sermon. It's very simple, but it's very effective. Uh, it's the context, truth, application method. Uh, we're gonna talk about some context so we can clearly understand what the writer of Genesis is trying to convey. Um, it wasn't written to us here in 2021 necessarily, so we have to understand the context of, of when it was written uh, who it was written to and things like that. Uh, then we're gonna pull out some main truths. What are the primary truths that we see in here? Those are never changing. Those are they're always the same, whether it was for people then and us now. Um, and we're gonna talk a little bit about application. What does this mean for me in 2021? How do I apply this to my life to grow closer to God? Um, so with that being said, I wanna pray for us and then we'll dive right in. God, we thank you so much for preserving your word. We thank you that we have your word, God. Uh, we pray that as we open it up and we dive into it today, that you would prepare our hearts, all of us, God, to, to receive what you have for us this morning, to take these truths um, in the context in which they were written and apply them to our lives so we can come to a deeper understanding of, of you and who we are in light of that, God. So I just pray that we receive it well. I pray that uh, we would continue to, to let it shape us, God, and change us so that we can go into the world uh, and multiply your image among your people. And it's uh, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so as far as our context, uh, we're gonna talk about that first, and as we go back to the earlier part of Genesis, we see a clear pattern begin to unfold, basically, right? We see the, in the garden, we see God's grace, right? He's given us everything we need. We're clothed in righteousness. But then we, we see man's rebellion against God when we bring sin into the world. Um, and then we fast forward a little bit and the, the result of that is man's wickedness just continues to breed more wickedness. It starts with Cain and Abel and then it just gets gradually worse from there until uh, right along in Genesis 6, getting into the story of Noah, we see that God is saddened that every thought and intention of man's heart is only evil and he even says continually. So it's just getting worse and worse, right? Um, and in that, God's God decides to bring his judgment in the form of a flood where he wipes everyone off the face of the earth. But again, we see God's grace uh, in the midst of rebellion. God preserves a family, right? Um, and when God preserves Noah and his family, uh, this is him extending grace, but we immediately see that when Noah got off of the ark, sin got off with him, right? So uh, rebellion just seems to be, uh, rebellion and God's grace seem to be a constant pattern which brings us to Genesis chapter 10, all right? Um, that's called the Table of Nations. Uh, and one of the things I wanna point out is that Genesis 10 chronologically comes 
after Genesis 11. So we're seeing the nations being split off into different places, but what you'll learn is he's, they're basically saying, hey, here's all the nations and how they were split off, but you're not gonna understand why they were split off until Genesis 11 when you see the, the story of Babel. Um, and the reason I tell you that is at the table of nations in Genesis 10, we're introduced to this guy named Nimrod, and what a name, right? Um, but the thing about Nimrod is his name actually means rebellion or rebel. So uh, this is a key piece. You hang on to that and we'll come back to it later. But this guy Nimrod becomes the leader of Babel, right? He is kind of the, the ruler uh, with Babel. He initiates a lot of those things that are about to happen in Genesis 11. Um, and Nimrod is also what they call a mighty man of old. And back in Genesis chapter six, we learned that the sons of God were having demonic relationships with the sons of man. Um, and these, these freakishly large, mighty men were born. And Nimrod just so happens to be the first of this offspring. Uh, and again, the reason why I tell you that is you just see this, this constant evil, this constant idea of rebellion among Nimrod. Um, he was the great grandson of Noah. So he wasn't very far removed from Noah. Um, I'm sure he had firsthand accounts of what happened at the flood and everything else, and yet he still produces what we're about to talk about in Genesis chapter 11. So knowing all of that, let's go ahead and read through Genesis chapter 11, one through nine, um, and we'll stop as we go and kind of talk a little about it. But starting in verse one. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. So this obviously speaks to the historical truth of scripture. Noah was the only man preserved. Uh, everyone would have came from his lineage. We know that this is probably an accurate description. And as men moved eastward, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. This is modern day Iraq. And they said to each other, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. So they used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Again, that speaks to the historical truth of scripture because in this particular part of Iraq, uh, stone was scarce. They would have had to have created brick. Um, and he says tar for mortar. And in that general location of the world, uh, we know that dreaded black substance called oil that everybody fights over. Um, so again, this just proves that this is all true, right? Um, and they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. God's commands have been pretty clear from the beginning. Um, scatter, not gather. Here we see Babel decide we'd rather gather than scatter. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the men were building. And the Lord said, if it's one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan will be impossible for them. Now, God's not saying man can do whatever he wants and create whatever he wants, but the whole idea here is that these men working together in unity in their rebellion have everything they need to destroy themselves, right? Nothing will be impossible for them to do. They have everything they need to destroy their souls. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there all over the earth and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Now, one more piece of context I wanna leave you with is, so it says that that is why it is called Babel, right? The Babel means confusion in Hebrew, but basically um, in the ancient language, um, Babylon basically 
was the gate of heaven, right? And I tell you that because once again, we see another piece of this scripture that just shows us rebellion, right? It speaks to the fact that man is rebellious against God. Now, now that we've talked a little about context, I want us to go kind of into the truth section uh, today. And there's two pretty clear truths that I see here in this passage. And the first one is, man is naturally rebellious towards God. And the second is, the God of judgment is also the God of grace, right? So we'll, let's talk about that first truth for just a minute. Um, man is naturally rebellious toward God. We've seen that pattern coming along. This is not a new truth, right? We've seen this played out from the beginning of Genesis. Hey, I'm gonna create the garden. I'm gonna make it perfect. I'm gonna clothe you in righteousness, and I just need you to not do this one thing. Well, Adam and Eve wreck it, right? Immediately. Well, then he says, hey, I'm gonna find the most righteous man on the planet. Like, I'm gonna take the most righteous person out of all of you. I'm gonna save him, and then I'm gonna wipe everyone else out, right? I'm gonna leave him here with his family. Well, Noah still managed to sin. Noah still managed to, to mess it up. Adam and Eve couldn't do it, Noah couldn't do it, and neither can we. And I think that God has set this story up intentionally, obviously, so we would begin to realize, like, look, you're not good enough. You can't do this on your own. You can't bring heaven to you. You can't get into heaven. You need a savior. You have to have a savior. Now, knowing that we naturally will rebel against God, it's not a secret, it will happen. We will rebel against God. I think the, the people of Babel really give us some warning signs of what it looks like to actively walk in rebellion, right? So we're gonna pull four things out of this passage um, that can, can basically be an identifier to us that if we begin to see them in our life, maybe we need to take a step back because these are some warning signs that we live in rebellion. And those four things are pride, selfishness, disobedience, and confusion. Now, Let's talk about pride. Looking at verse three, they said to each other, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. And they used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. And then they go on to say, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches into the heavens. Now, the people of Babel were so prideful that here they attempt to take the place of God, right? They attempt to assert themselves to the place of God. They even use, and this I think is intentional, they even use the same language as God did in the creation account. When God created mankind, he said, come, let us make man in our own image. And here the people of Babel, what I would say is intentionally saying, come, let us make, so on and so forth, right? Um, and what I mean by they attempted to take the place of God is man had lost access to God in the garden, right? We, we lived in communion with God, we walked with him, he dwelled with his people, and there was sacred space there. But when we brought sin into the world, we destroyed that sacred space. And now the people of Babel are trying to manufacture their own God by building this tower up into heaven, right? And this tower is what was known as a ziggurat in the old days. Um, they would build these giant towers next to the temples, and it wasn't literally for them to reach up into heaven. It was for God to come down and dwell in that tower. They were trying to recreate that, that sacred space of God dwelling with his people. And that sounds innocent, but the problem is they didn't want God. They weren't trying to dwell with God. They needed God to come down and bless them richly so that they could have all these things and create this gigantic city so that others would come and, and they would receive praise from it. They would make a name for themselves, right? So they were trying to manufacture their own God. They had taken the place of God. Now, you know who had the same idea 
It was Satan. In Isaiah chapter 14, verse 13 through 14, he's talking about Satan. You said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the Mount of Assembly on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds and I will make myself like the most high. The resemblance is uncanny. Satan's fall from heaven was exactly like the situation here at Babel. We want to ascend and put ourselves into that position. C.J. Mahaney says, Pride is when sinful human beings aspire to the status and position of God and refuse to acknowledge their dependence on him. Uh, and here's the thing for us, or at least for me, I hate to speak on your behalf, but I think you'll all agree with me. We're joy seekers, right? Like our goal in life is to find that thing that's gonna satisfy us. Ironically enough, we know it's a relationship with God, but that's never enough for us. We seem to want everything else, right? And we're gonna keep searching for it, we're gonna keep reaching for it, and our pride convinces us that if that's essentially us, we're willing to do whatever to get that thing. We're willing to elevate ourselves above God, above other people, and we'll do whatever it takes to get there. And our pride convinces us that when we get there and we begin to receive all that praise, that it's gonna satisfy us. And it's, it's super evident in most of our lives today, uh, we've bought into this lie that we were created to be worshiped, right? When the gospel speaks against that and says, no, you were created to worship and you're created to worship God specifically. So again, we're, we're, we're just super confused and we feel like once we get to that place, no matter what it takes, we begin to receive the worship of man uh, and, and we're gonna be happy. For some reason, we feel that way. Now, pride's the root of all sin and it comes before destruction. Proverbs says that. Um, and I think that we see that to be true here because if we know that pride comes before destruction, we see the pride of the people in Babel lead to the city never being finished, the people are scattered. So again, our pride leads to destruction and we're no different than the people of Babel. You know, we just like them, kind of brick by brick in our life, our pride begins to lead us down this path that results in destruction because it pulls us away from God. Now, I feel like the pride we see today, and now we're kind of going into a little more of an application piece, but um, obviously pride comes in all different forms, all different sizes, but there's four different categories that I feel like we primarily see pride in our lives. Um, the first one is spiritual pride. The second one is pride of knowledge. The third one is pride of power. And the fourth one is pride of appearance. So spiritual pride. This is the, and I hate to use this term, but this is the super Christian. And, and let me start by saying, there's nothing wrong with someone's life being absolutely 100% saturated with God, right? There's nothing wrong with everything you do being about God. That's great if that's where your heart lies. But if, if you're the super Christian, um, essentially what you begin to see is this is someone that maybe they have a hard time loving sinners, right? We begin to minimize our own sin so we can elevate ourselves above others. So we really struggle to love those people that are committing sin. They're, they're in the act of doing things wrong, right? We become the church police. This same person feels the need to, to prove that they're a Christian. Maybe it's by generous giving. And again, there's nothing wrong with having a generous heart if that's truly where your heart is. But then you see those people that because of their pride, they wanna go above and beyond and they want people to notice they're giving, or maybe this person has a false humility, right? Like it's kind of hard to compliment them. You go to them and you try to give them a compliment and it's, oh, praise God, it's not me. And that is true. And again, that's a good thing until it becomes a false humility. Uh, then we just see pride. Uh, number two is pride of knowledge. Um, I'd love to, I don't fit in this category because this person usually is super smart, 
but they have to prove that they're smart. When they walk into a room, this person wants you to know that they're the smartest one in the room. And these people are unteachable. Uh, as their pride begins to swell in their heart, uh, it's kind of hard to coach them. You know what I mean? It's kind of hard to teach them. Uh, they're highly opinionated. These people always have to speak their mind. They always have to put their two cents into the situation. Um, and they're, they're really not open to correction. And again, this kind of goes back to being uncoachable. Uh, pride begins to swell them to the point that they know better than you do. So you really can't help them, right? Um, I see this in my own life a lot. Uh, but then number three is pride of power, right? This person, typically a workaholic. Uh, they begin to, because they're so proud of what they do, they begin to pour themselves into their work, but they, they're controlling. Um, these people are self-reliant. They don't trust other people. My pride says that I can do it better than you, so I don't even trust you to deal with this. Other people's success bothers you. Uh, you see people flourishing and succeeding and your pride inside of you just kind of like, now you just want to knock them back down a peg because you've got to get above them. Your pride can't take it. And then lastly, there's pride of appearance, right? And, and this kind of goes two ways. It, it can mean what it literally says. You need others to notice your beauty. Um, there's a certain way you've got to dress. Your shoes have to be tied just right. Your hair's got to be moved and parted just right. And this is, I'm not referring to women here, if you're wondering. This is men also. Uh, but pride of appearance is also kind of like, a, like status, right? Uh, we need the, the bigger house. We need the newer car. I can't go with the car I have. I need the new one, right? Because so-and-so got the new one. And now my, my pride tells me that I got to have it all and other people need to see me having it all together, right? Now, the only hope that we have for battling pride in our life is the gospel. Um, th that's the only solution. I'd love to sit here and give you this you know, five-step program of how to eliminate selfishness in your life, but the gospel is the only way we can do it. We have to be constantly reminded of that story that we can't do this ourselves. We can't fix ourselves. Our greatest problems are not what we drive or what someone else thinks about us or how smart we are. Our greatest problem is sin and death, and we cannot conquer those two things apart from Jesus, right? And the gospel is, is the great pride crusher. It says, hey, you suck, uh, but God is amazing, right? And when you're clothed in him, then you eliminate uh, the need to, to feel prideful. J.D. Greer says, in every heart, there's a throne and a cross. And if God sits on the throne, then you have to be on the cross. But if you sit on the throne, then Jesus has to be on the cross. All right, so it's just this idea that your pride tells God to get out of the chair. I want it. I can rule my own life. I can do what you do. I don't need you to help me with this. And we see that in the story of Babel. Now, the next thing I noticed, the second warning sign that we're gonna look at is selfishness, right? And we talked about how pride is kind of the root of all sin. So selfishness just plays out of pride. It's, it's nothing new. Um, and I'm sure I'm gonna have to explain this one well because none of us understand what selfishness is, right? Um, but look at verse four again. It goes on to say that, then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. And obviously, the passage doesn't require a lot of teachings or teaching. The motives and intentions of the people of Babel were just as inward focused as they come. That's, that's no secret. But there's two parts to this verse that I really want us to bring out. There's two parts that I really want us to understand. Uh, one, there was a physical act of selfishness, right? The building of the city and the tower. Uh, they actually done a selfish thing or they acted in a selfish way. 
And the second thing is the act of building started with their selfish heart. Like, hey, we wanna make a name for ourselves. At the root level of our heart, we are selfish, therefore my selfish action um, is coming out in the form of building the city and the tower. Um, trying to eliminate these, these selfish, selfish actions is not enough, right? Because at the heart level, sin, selfishness just pours out of us. If we change our outward actions, it does nothing for the inside, so it's like playing whack-a-mole. Eventually, let me, just, let me give you an example of this, really. My wife, Lauren, is, has predominantly been the one who gets up with our kids in the middle of the night when they cry or need a bottle or whatever. Um, and I started to notice that. Let me also say, if I have a black eye next week, it's because of this sermon. But um, I started to notice that I would just kind of lay there. Sometimes I would wake up. Sometimes I wouldn't. But when I would wake up and hear the kids, I would kind of lay there thinking like, well, I wonder if she's going to go get them. And uh, naturally, I would do that until she eventually just got up and went to go serve our kids. And without grumbling, might I add, she's an awesome person, but um, I, I would lay there and I began to realize that this is not okay, right? That this is super selfish of me. Um, and God began to convict me over it. So <laughs> I ended up going to Lauren and I said, hey, listen, I gotta be honest with you. Uh, God's really convicting me over this and I need your help. Like, I need you to wake me up. I need you to say, Hey, please go get the kids. And I did. That, you know, started a few times, maybe for a little while. Um, I would get up and I would go get the kids. But here's the problem. The very, like the next day, um, I distinctly remember uh, God convicting me again because I kind of pulled the same trick with changing diapers. It was the same way. I would just stand there and wait for the diaper to get changed. Um, and I'd be like, oh, I, I would have changed it. I don't mind, you know. Um, and the point that I'm making here is that's the whack-a-mole situation. I can change some of these selfish actions about myself, but if I don't approach it at a heart level, another one's fixing to come up right after it, right? There's, there's no way to deal with this until we get at the heart level. So my big question about selfishness would be, how does that selfishness and that selfish heart fit into the gospel narrative? And clearly we know it doesn't, right? Uh, I wanna take you to Jesus' words in Matthew 20, 26. It says, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the most selfless thing that we've ever seen, ever. You'll never find anything more selfless than that, right? So in this passage, when, when Jesus speaks, I see one word that kind of gives me a game plan to, to battle my selfishness. And it's the word service or to serve, right? Um, when, when I think about that, I, I get this idea that we, we, have to, we have to start giving more of ourselves away and we have to begin to serve in, in the capacity and in the way that Christ did because it's only then that we begin to get a glimpse into his heart. We begin to get a glimpse into the gospel, Right? If I'm serving other people and I'm denying myself a little more and I'm giving more of my time and my energy to other people, it may be serving at church, it may be leading a connect group, it may be serving in the community, whatever it is, I begin to see the heart of Jesus in the gospel, right? And again, I can give you five steps on how to change selfishness in your life, but at the end of the day, you have to get at it at a heart level and the only way to do that is through the gospel. We have to be reminded of the gospel. Um, I heard a guy, this is probably as 
kind of redneck, but um, I heard a guy say, you know, he's talking about two dogs in one food bowl. He says, hey, there's, there's two dogs in your heart and there's one food bowl. And, and the dog that gets to the food most is gonna be the one that wins the fight every time, right? If he continues to eat and eat and eat, he's gonna bully the other dog right on out of the way. And it's the same way for us. We've got selfishness and service in our heart and they're both fighting over the same food bowl. So whichever one we let eat more is the one that's gonna control our lives. We have to begin to pour more of ourselves out for others so that we can begin to see the heart of Jesus. Now, we talked about pride and we talked about selfishness and I wanna talk about the third warning sign that we're actively walking in rebellion and it's disobedience. It's disobedience. So in verse four, they, they go on, we've already talked about verse four a lot, but towards the tail end of it, they say, and not be scattered over the face of the earth. God's commands to Adam and Eve were pretty clear. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it, right? Uh, God's commands to Noah and his descendants were pretty clear. Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. And yet, we see their pride and their selfishness lead to disobedience to this one simple command. And now keep in mind, Nimrod, who is the leader of Babel, was the great-grandson of Noah. So it wasn't like he had plenty of time to forget this command. It wasn't like all this time had passed by and now he doesn't remember what God wants from them. He had a first-hand account of, of the flood, of what God said to Noah and his descendants. He remembers, but that pride inside of him leads him to disobedience, Right? Um, it would seem like, in my opinion, that that problem didn't stop with Babel. That problem continues today. There's, there's a lot of people around us, um, maybe some of us in here, maybe not, but there's a lot of us that are disobedient to God's command to be fruitful and multiply. And this is what we refer to as discipleship, right? This is the idea that the gospel has come into your heart, it's transformed your life, and now you're supposed to go and give that away to someone else. You're supposed to find that person that God is already working in. God's doing something in them. You invite them to a meeting. You invite them over for dinner. And you just begin to share with them what God has done for you. You begin to multiply the image that God has instilled in your heart into someone else's life, right? And this usually happens in a one-on-one -on -one setting. But we, we deny that. And we're disobedient to this, this call, right? And I think there's a couple of, I'd say two primary reasons that we're not obedient to God's call to go and make disciples or to be fruitful and multiply. And the first one is, our pride tells us that if we go where God wants us to go instead of where we wanna be, we won't be able to make a name for ourselves, right? So deep down, we know that God's called us to go out into the world to, to basically labor for his name, to go and make disciples, but that means that I don't have enough time to make my own name, right? I don't have enough time to be known myself. And the second one, our selfishness tells us that we have comfort and security right where we are. So for some of us, we're, we're disobedient to God's command to go and make disciples or to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. We're disobedient to that because we're comfortable. We've got security right where we are. In, in the story of, of Val, they say, come, let us build a city, right? They wanted to gather. They wanted comfort and security, and this network of people was their comfort and their security. Hey, we're gonna come together. We're gonna find comfort in living in unity with a bunch of rebellious people instead of going out and making a name for God. So again, our pride and our selfishness lead us a point of disobedience to, to this one command. Now, 
in the context of Babel, we're talking about this one command, this, this very large command to be fruitful, multiply God's image in the world and fill the earth. But in our context today, I feel like we've, we've began to see disobedience in many of God's commands, right? Not just this one, but we've become disobedient in all areas of our life or in a, a lot of areas of our life, right? And what I mean is it becomes easier once you're, like, you're walking in rebellion. Disobedience is a warning sign that you might be walking in rebellion, but it's become easier for you to neglect the church or to neglect small group, right? Like if you happen to wake up late and miss a Sunday, it's easier for you. It's not, it's not a big deal. Or um, if you happen to you know, have something going on through the week and you're tired and groups you know, later in the week and it's like, well, I can miss a week. You know, it's been a rough week. I can miss it. But you begin to slowly become disobedient to God's commands. Um, it becomes easier to neglect. I think of discipling our children, right? Poor, it's family worship Sunday. It's easier to forget we've got family worship night. It's a resource that we have to help you guys worship in your living room with your children. So, you know, hey, we got a plan on Wednesday night. We're gonna do family worship night, but all of a sudden work's been kind of rough Monday or Tuesday, or you decide you wanna go eat Mexican. So it's a little bit easier to kind of push family worship night to the side. You no longer want to disciple your children, and I'm not talking at you guys. I'm in the boat with you. You know, things come up. We become numb to it. We miss a week, maybe two, and then all of a sudden, at least a three or four. Um, it becomes easier to avoid serving others, right? Like, you know that I'm probably gonna call some of you and say, hey, we, we got a need in the community, and y'all are probably shaking right now. Like, oh, Lord, is he gonna call me? But you get nervous, right? You know, and, and it, again, it even happens with me sometimes too. Uh, we kind of steer ourselves away from those situations of having to serve others. Um, I can think of a bunch of times where, you know, God's convicted me to maybe pull over and help someone that I see or give someone a ride or uh, give money to someone in need. And in that moment, I could kind of feel myself like, just back away slowly, you know, don't, don't try not to think about it, bring it up and it'll be all right. You'll forget about it eventually. And you become numb in that way. So if we're walking in rebellion, we start to see disobedience creep into our lives in this way. The list goes on and on, but the point is, if you are slowly seeing disobedience in your life, if it's easier to let a bunch of trash TV play in the living room without cutting it off or whatever the case may be, if you're seeing disobedience, it may be a warning sign that you're walking in rebellion against God. Now, here's our last warning sign. Um, confusion, right? I want to talk about confusion. In verse seven, God said, come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. Now, I think we've established at this point that mankind was unified in their rebellion against God. The story of Babel proves to us that they were all working together as one and they were also headed in the direction of Rebellion And God's simple response was to break that unity with a language barrier that resulted in a whole lot of confusion, right? Now, in short, we see sin and rebellion against God lead to confusion. And let me just say, if you want confusion, language is a great way to do it, all right? Um, this is coming from, I, I'm sure you figured out by now that I'm a simple farmer from Collins, and when God saved me, he gave me the opportunity to uh, have a heart for the nations, and this past year, uh, I went to Turkey, and when we landed at the airport, I'm already kind of on edge, you know, this is new to me and everything, um, and I'm starving because of COVID, they didn't feed us on this long plane ride, 
And uh, I'm, the airport is like the last opportunity for me to get a good, terrible for me, big, fat, greasy American meal. And Burger King just so happened to be at the airport. So I go up to Burger King and I try to order my food. Well, of course, I'm sure you can guess she does not speak English. And even worse, I don't either. I kind of speak some other language, but she, she can't understand me, right? And I'm thinking, okay, well, there's a universal language called point. You know what I mean? Like, surely she can figure this out. So, like, I'm aiming over here and trying to tell her, still not getting it, right? Just tons of confusion on this girl's face, tons of confusion on my face. And she eventually got so frustrated with me that she decided I was going to eat what she wanted me to have for the day which was fine with me at this point. I was okay with that, um, but it gets worse because then I go to try and pay, right? Well, I had forgotten to call our bank and say, hey, I'm gonna be in another country. Please don't cut me off. So when I try to pay, they cancel it, right? And she's trying to explain to me that my card has been denied. Um, it's not going well at this point. And uh, I'm like, okay, well, surely I can figure this out. I grab my wallet and I pull some cash out and you guessed it, they don't take cash, right? They take euros and they take Turkish money. I don't even remember what it was called. But anyway, so much confusion, right? And it's driving me crazy. Like I'm, I'm, I'm just now getting to the airport. Like we hadn't even started the trip and this was my experience. So all this confusion is going on and uh, I say that to tell you sin and rebellion in our, in our lives leads to that exact same kind of confusion. It, it's, it's literally no different. Um, I, I think about how it, the, the way we didn't understand each other, the way things didn't work out when I was in Turkey, is the same thing for us because we're walking outside of God's design, right? We're, we're walking outside of the way God has created us to live. We're, we're in rebellion against him, so we don't understand. I think about uh, marriage, right? Confusion in marriage. Um, I I don't know about you guys, but if, if, if there's ever a ch an opportunity for me to struggle in marriage, I think about um, other situations too, like, um, I don't understand why this is happening. You used to be different. Well, well, no, you used to be different. Well, things have changed. You're not the same person. I, you, you've got struggles in your marriage maybe, right? And it's because you've brought sin and rebellion to the table. You don't understand how to love one another because now our sin and rebellion has led to confusion. We're not walking in God's design anymore. Or maybe it's parenting, right? I feel this one deeply, not because my kids are bad, but just because sometimes I wanna, I wanna understand why they can go from the sweetest, cutest little thing to being little demons like that. And it's, you know, it's this kind of thing where, well, my kids just won't act like they should. I mean, I'm doing all the things, right? What's wrong with them? Why do they act like this? They didn't used to do that. Lauren, that's your kid, you know? Why? And the problem is we've brought sin and rebellion to the table and it's, conf it's confusion. It results in confusion in parenting. I think about confusion in life. Well, I don't understand why all this is happening to me. You know, like, why, why is this Christian walk so hard? Why would God do this to me? Why would he lead me down this path? Why don't he make this path a little more clear for me? I don't get it. I'm just confused. Well, you guessed it. The problem is we've brought sin and rebellion to the table and it's resulted in confusion, right? We don't understand each other anymore. We don't understand relationships because our sin and rebellion has caused us to form these relationships on this side of the road. So if this is God's design, we form relationships on this side, and now we don't know how to love one another. There's no manuscript for that, right? 
But when we begin to kind of maneuver ourselves back over in the direction of God's plan for our life, when we get back on mission for God and making a name for him instead of ourselves, our relationships become whole again. Now, I know how to love my wife. Now, I know how to love my husband. Now, I know how to parent my kids. I'm not confused about any of this. I know God's will for my life. I understand he wants me to go and make disciples. I'm not confused anymore, okay? So, we've learned man is naturally rebellious against God. That was our first truth. And in that truth, we know the people of Babel have given us some warning signs to look for, right? To make sure we don't walk in active rebellion against God. Those were pride, selfishness, disobedience, and confusion. These are your check engine lights, okay? And listen to me, I know some of you, especially women, I'm sorry to do this, but you'll get in the car, check engine light flashing at you, hey, we're good, buddy, we're gonna ride, okay? The car's gonna be fine, it's probably like an electrical problem, we'll ignore it until it goes away. Here's the issue, the car will probably keep going for you with these lights flashing at you left and right, okay? It will probably keep riding, but eventually you will destroy the car. All right, eventually the car will break down. It may take some time, but it's coming. All right, these four things are our check engine light. If you see these in your life, you begin to notice your pride. You begin to notice your selfishness, your disobedience, your confusion. When you see that, God is saying, hey, look at me. All right, you need to fix this. You need to address it. We have to work on it. If not, it will lead us to destruction. I'm telling you, just like the Tower of Babel, it will lead us to destruction. And we are naturally rebellious against God. So my guess would be for each and every one of us, including me, when we walk out that door, we won't make it about 30 minutes from here and you're gonna find one of those four things, I promise you. But you have to start identifying them. You have to become self-aware of them and you have to begin to eliminate them from your life. It's the two dogs, one water bowl idea. You've got to start knocking one of them dogs back so the other one can eat a little more. So my question is, do any of these characterize your life? What warning signs do you need to address today? I challenge you to think about that. I challenge you to go home and evaluate your life in light of the, this truth, in light of these four things. But as, as we close out, this, this brings me into my second truth. Um, and, and this is gonna be fairly short, but I want you to listen closely because this is a big truth, okay? The God of judgment is also the God of grace. The God of judgment is also the God of grace. We, we think back through Genesis, if you're anything like me, and I know we see a lot of judgment, right? We wanna pull out the judgment in the fall. We wanna see God kick us out of the garden, you know? We wanna find the judgment in Noah and the flood. We wanna think about God flooding the whole earth and wiping everyone out. And then we think about judgment here in this story. God comes down and confuses their language, right? But let me tell you something. He's still the God of grace. In his judgment, he brought grace. Do you realize that in the garden, God did one of the hardest things ever? He said, hey, these are the people I love. I've created them to be holy, right? And they've sinned against me, and now I gotta kick them out of the garden. But the reason he had to kick them out of the garden is because he knew if they ate from the tree of life in this sinful state, they'd be stuck that way forever. So we look at it as if it's judgment, but it's grace. God says, hey, I love you. I'm gonna bring you out of this, okay? In the flood, he said, I'm gonna preserve a family. I'm gonna preserve a righteous family. You all deserve to die, right? That's what God is saying, not me. He's saying at this point in time, the wickedness needed to be judged. 
but I'm still gonna save a family, right? I'm still gonna preserve you. And here in the Tower of Babel, we see God's judgment in grace. The first thing I notice is he meets us where we are, right? I want you to know that. The God of grace meets us where we are. So in the worst possible condition that the people of Babel could be living in, what does God do? His words are, come, let us go down. Let's go to them. They can't come to me. They can't come to us. I'm gonna go to them right where they are in the most jacked up place of their life. And let me tell you something. This one hits home. This one hits home really hard. God came to me. In the worst place in my life. All right, three o'clock in the morning. I was doing so many things I shouldn't have been doing. But in his grace, he came to me. He come to us in the garden. He comes to us in Jesus in the form of a man. The God of judgment is also the God of grace, right? He brings a new kingdom. So again, we look at the judgment brought on the Tower of Babel and we forget to see the grace. But here's the thing, God sees mankind living in rebellion. They're working in unity and they're building their own kingdom. They're building this own tower. And God goes down, he confuses their language, and he scatters them. But why? He says, hey, you're building your own kingdom, but I want you to be in mine. I don't want you to ruin your chances of the kingdom I'm building for you. You gotta go. You gotta, you gotta spread out. You gotta scatter. You have to stop building this kingdom. I want you in mine. So we see God's grace in that. And lastly, he does for man what man can't do for himself. This is pretty clear, right? God comes down and God forces these men to scatter. We, we couldn't pull our bootstraps up. We couldn't get back on the plan God had for us. God comes down and he does it for us. Let me tell you something super cool, super interesting. So we understand in Babel, in the Tower of Babel, God takes unity and turns it into confusion, right? But now if we fast forward to the book of Acts at Pentecost, Jesus is already going back to the Father. He says, hey, wait, tells the apostles, wait for the gift I'm gonna send you. And then at Pentecost, we see the Holy Spirit, which is the gift, come down, rest on the apostles, right? It says that they began to speak in tongues. They began to speak in different languages. Jerusalem was filled with people from all over, people who spoke many different languages, right? And what do we see now? We see God make good on what he did at Babel. He done for man what man couldn't do for themselves. He reverses Babel. Where he took men from unity into confusion, now these men are proclaiming the gospel in tons of different languages, and God brings all this confusion back into unity. He says, hey, you people, like you don't understand what is going on with this whole Jesus deal. Well, I'm fixing to speak it in your language. I'm gonna give you the gospel message so you can make a choice. All of this confusion results in the unity of God's church. He does this in his grace. He wants us. Grace is at the door. Just receive it. God wants us to receive it. So if you will, bow your heads for me. I'd like for all of us to pray together this morning. And as we begin to pray, let me, let me say this. I don't know where you are. I don't know what's going on in your life. 
I don't know which one of these warning signs characterizes you. You may be walking close with God. You may be far from God. You may not even know God. But let me tell you something. God's got enough grace for every one of those categories. If you're in here this morning and you would say, I'm living actively in rebellion against God. I do not have a relationship with God. Or if you're in here and you're saying, I know God, I've accepted him, but rebellion is characterizing my life right now. I just want you to raise your hand. We wanna pray for you. If that's you this morning, just lift it high. Someone will come and pray with you. For the rest of us, God, I pray that we would learn from these truths, God, that we would see your glory in this story. We would know what you want from us. Pray that we would find these warning signs. I pray we would begin to battle them, God. I pray we would actively look for them this week. And God, I pray that we would remember your grace day in and day out. I pray that we would be reminded of it each day in order to fight the rebellion in our heart. It's because of the finished work of the cross we pray. Amen. All right, thank you guys. We'll see y'all next week. Thank you.